Welcome to Subject Power. I'm El Kemihira. In trying to explain inequality between the sexes and how we ended up with cultures where men as a class dominate women as a class, we often try to assign women certain qualities and men certain other qualities to explain to ourselves this drastically unequal world order. And often we arrive at the idea that women inhabit the emotional realm and that men inhabit the thinking realm. And in the hierarchy of realms, thinking is deemed superior. What a lot of us don't understand, but that my guest, trauma specialist Christine Forner, will explain in great detail in this episode, is that the feelings versus thought hierarchy is complete fiction. It simply doesn't work that way. We simply don't work that way. Emotion, or as she calls it, affect, is the most elemental system of, I was going to say communication, but it's more than that. It is our system of being, of existing. Not a trait reserved for certain groups or something to control or separate your thinking from or something not to succumb to but rather something every human being on the planet depends on to be a human being. How long is the race? So it's an Iron Man. It's an Iron person, but an Iron Man is a 3.8-kilometer swim, a 180-kilometer bike ride, and a 42.2-kilometer run. Wow. It's like 140 some odd miles. And you train for this all year? Yeah. I've wanted to do one since I was 13. I remember watching a woman named Julie Moss in 1982. And she was just crawling across this finish line and like her body gave out. And I'm not the only person who's had this happen when I was like 13. And I'm like, I want to do that one day. I was trying to be an Olympic athlete. I was actually swimming with someone who went on to do the Olympics. And at 13, so that summer, I was very violently sexually assaulted by a swim coach. And I didn't remember it until I was 40. I was a sexual assault therapist for 20 years, and I didn't remember what happened to me. And so, like, Mm. I I was an intense athlete as a child. I loved being in the pool. I loved swimming twice a day. I loved going as hard as I possibly could. There was, like, this freedom and this euphoria and this power that went with being a swimmer as a kid. And then um, I I just, it happened and I I blanked it out almost immediately. I said, my parents, I don't want to swim anymore. And they're like, okay. And then, uh, and then my life went down some very dark paths for very many years. And when I really started doing a lot of internal healing and a lot of sensory motor work, that's when I remembered I was hurt by this I don't remember too much about it. I remember the violence of it. I remember the terror of it. And I started doing little triathlons in 2008. So it would be hard to get in the pool, but I didn't know why. And it would be hard to exercise. And I didn't know why, because the neurochemistry and the neuroelectricity of activation of, of racing and getting your heart rate up and having that internal heat can feel very similar to the activation of terror. And so my body would associate exercise with terror, not with euphoria. 2010, I went and saw my very first Ironman. 
And that's when I realized that there was no way I could ever do one being married to the person that I was married to. And I went home the next day and said, we're done. And then it was seven years of hell and $250,000 later and a lot of realizations that I didn't know. I didn't know that I was in an incredibly coercively controlling relationship for 30 years. I didn't know how violent it was in like not obvious ways. Iron Man was sort of the thing that motivated me. And so when I did my first one in 15, I processed an awful lot of trauma that first time I trained for an Ironman. Lots of crying in ditches, lots of shaking, lots of, I didn't know what it was, but I knew my body was moving through a lot of things. And so when I did my first one, I felt like I danced the whole time. It felt like such this, this privilege and this empowerment and this ability. And then there was still a couple more years of the the worst part of the divorce left. And then a couple years of just being exhausted and not being able to move. COVID hit. I ended up getting an autoimmune in 2021. I puffed up. I could barely walk. I knew it was a trauma response. I had a doc that understood my trauma response. So the doc and I worked together and I'm happy to report beginning of October, there's no longer any traceable evidence of having an autoimmune inside of me. And I just started slowly getting back to training and really working on regulating myself. And by that time I was safe and I had worked everything out and I was able to train for my Ironman last year. And I just kept training to do this one and I'm signed up to do another one and I want to make it to Kona. Kona is the big leagues in my world. Wow. It strikes me these things as being like mind over matter. And I don't mean to, I know who I'm talking to. I probably, <laughs> I'm probably not saying the thing, uh, but uh, you, you know what I mean? Like my body is very strong and I didn't know how strong it was most of my life. And when it, when it wasn't strong anymore, I did not like that whatsoever. It just feels remarkable to be able to do these things and to feel strong and Usually when I finish these things, I'm euphoric for months. Like it's, there's this, you, you're not going to get me. There is like, and I really, I strongly recommend women actually try one of these because you achieve something so physically difficult. And we're told our whole lives that we're weak and that we're not strong physically. And I we need we're, protection and help. And that we need protection. And I'm like, mm -mm. like, like even when, like if I have a bike problem and somebody stops by and can I help you? And I'm like, no, I'm good. And it, it's interesting because I, like, if you, if you look at my body, you'd never see this intense high caliber athlete, but I can finally accept the, the moniker of athlete. So I really strongly recommend, I feel better now than I did when I was in my thirties and forties. And the thing about training is that you're by yourself a lot you're swimming in your own self a lot. You're running by yourself a lot. You're on the bike a lot by yourself. And I'm not sure that I could get here if I didn't do the trauma work first. And if I hadn't sort of taken care of that, the, the instant reaction of dissociation, if I didn't take care of that, I never would have had the ability to learn to regulate the way I did. Mm. So it, like to me, there's a sort of a combination of that self-reflection, but also with a little bit of support. So I do want to pick up where we left off last, and I know you've done a lot of thinking, conceptualizing and writing since then, but I also wanted to kind of like include a little bit of baseline information for people who don't necessarily understand like everything you're talking about. 
That's great. So I wanted to start with, I don't think most people have a, like a full concept of what empathy is and how it functions in humans, empathy and related attachment. I think the easiest way to start with empathy and attachment is to really visualize the central nervous system first. Inside everybody is this electrical conduit. Everything gets communicated, not just through the brain, right? It goes from the body up into the brain, from the brain down into the body. It's all supposed to sort of be working as one in adulthood. But as infants and children, that central nervous system, that electrical conduit is how we inform others of our internal regulation, whether we're okay or not okay, whether we're comfortable or uncomfortable. So when we are born, our sensory motor and affective systems or affective circuitry, so the affective circuitry is basically a highway of information that goes from all of our organs it's basically how we feel inside of our body. So everything that is below the neck. So this is where we're gathering hunger, thirst, warm, cold, comfort, discomfort, safety, security, not safe, insecure. All of this information for us as a, as a human being gets communicated via electrical impulses and chemical information. So with that electrical conduit, when it is regulated, it's humming at a tolerable or even pleasurable tone, so to speak. When it starts to get dysregulated, that central nervous system becomes inflamed. All the electricity starts to heighten and the chemistry starts to communicate. So if we start to get cold, the body will start to, the electrical nervous system will start to increase and perhaps the body will start to shake as the nerves are trying to do something, as the body's trying to do something to address that need. So when that electrical conduit goes, when the affective circuitry and the electrical conduit are getting higher or the volume is turning up, so to speak, we start to experience discomfort. And for us as a species, in the first three years of life, that discomfort is communicated through cries, coos, movement. It's not going to be communicated through language. It's not going to be communicated through words. It's not going to be communicated through concepts. And it is instinctual. That human body is going to communicate that it has something it needs, but it doesn't know what it needs. So it's just going to be able to communicate discomfort. When that human body, if that gets met, if there's an external source that meets the need of that body and addresses the need, then the body goes back to being at a pleasurable hump. That's what we would classify as regulated. Attachment for humans is the external expectation that another will take care of it, that somebody else is going to take care of you rather than you taking care of yourself. So for, for all other animals, that attachment is, it might be a little bit more with say elephants than it is for say like snakes. Snakes don't have attachment, but elephants might have minor attachment. Still within that elephant, the system is designed to be a self-regulatory system, maybe with some external supports, but it is something that is designed to happen. For humans, 
we didn't have that. Our external system of regulation is really based on other people for our whole lives. And that's what empathy is. Empathy is the neurophysiological, neurobiomechanical ability to read another person's central nervous system. We can feel other people's feelings inside of us. We can detect their affective circuitry. We can detect their sensory motor system so that we, along with things like intuition, along with things like attunement, their biomechanical processes that are designed to read other people's central nervous systems and make sense of that data and then do things to address that data. So a lot of people think empathy is like this intellectual process of being able to intellectualize another person's been through a problem. That's actually not what empathy really is. Empathy is feeling other people's feelings. We have neurons inside of our brains that are designed to detect other people's pain. What gets tricky with the human species is that in order to be able to self-regulate and co-regulate, you need to have internal awareness. You need to be well-regulated yourself. You need to have empathy towards yourself as much as other people. You need to have introception working. So the ability to go in and be able to differentiate between you and another person's feelings so that you can go, okay, I've got myself good. I'm regulated. So this is what this other person's feeling. So I need to do this for that other person to help this. And this is very, very active with mothers, especially in the last stages of pregnancy in the first three years of life. So if those needs aren't met, then we go into an emergency response. All of these systems stop working. And that central nervous system becomes intensely inflamed. Uh, we can make this assumption because when infants' needs aren't met, we know that infants will go into something called an attachment cry. We know that also from studying children who have been highly neglected and kids who are harmed as infants and children, that their ability to dissociate is phenomenal, honestly. So we know that dissociation, the neurochemistry of dissociation, it's an opioid-based type of neurochemical. So it's like an anesthetic. It's there to help us not feel the pain that we are in. But it's also the brain structures that are responsible for interpreting the data that's coming from the sensory motor, like the hippocampus, the insula. These are brain structures that are designed to sort of send body data up to the brain. And when people dissociate, that doesn't work. So the front brain, when we dissociate, becomes hyper aroused. So we can think a lot, but we're missing lots of data. The affective information also goes away. We don't know what we feel. We can still think, but we're missing data. I think the, the thing that really interests me is this process of where did real, true neurobiological empathy come from? Because it never would have evolved if we were the creature we've been told we were. This wild, survival, hair-pulling, cave people, alpha, hunter. If that was how we evolved, we never would have evolved empathy, but we also wouldn't have evolved the fact that we don't have sharp canines. We smile. 
instead of growl. We have whites in our eyes so that we can see each other's eyes. Everything about humans are designed to have this co-regulation. Everything about us is oriented towards intense safety and attachment. Yeah, you talk about uh, safety in numbers evolution. Well, so empathy, empathy is fascinating, right? So inside of me are the structures to read inside of you. There's the, I think, therefore I am, which sort of Descartes said that makes everybody go, oh yeah, that's human. No, actually what really, there's a lot of other animals that think there's a lot of other animals that are very intelligent. There's even a lot of animals that are self-aware. What makes us unique as a species is I feel me and I feel you. Therefore, I am. And I think that the ability to feel another person's feelings, like almost like if you think about it, like that psychic connection. If I'm in a meditative state, if I have exercised the brain structures that are responsible for meditation, which are also the same brain structures that are responsible for secure attachment, I can feel with a very high percentage of accuracy exactly what my infant is feeling inside of them. An infant who is unable to communicate, an infant that is unable to verbalize, an infant that does not have concept or meaning, but needs that central nervous system attended to immediately. Because infants very quickly go to this place of pain. They go to this place of distress. They go to this place of dissociative, I'm going to die because I'm all alone. What are the conditions for that ability to function well? In order for those brain structures to be working the way they're supposed to be working, which aligns with the, the research that's out there about us being an alloparenting species, is that you need at least six people taking care of the mother and the child and the father and the child. So if we're an alloparenting species, which we are, we are an alloparenting species, meaning that four to six people take care of one child. In that environment of, there's a lot of research that shows that somehow 150 is a magical number. So if we use that information and say, okay, we used to live in groups of about 150 people. And out of that 150 people, four to six people were taking care of one child, not everybody's having babies. Actually, most people aren't. But in that situation, the person that is having the child, the mother that is having the child, in order for her to be in a mindful state, in that meditative mindful state all the time, she's going to have to have all her needs met. She's going to have to be supplied food. She's going to have to be supplied clothing. She's going to have to be supplied safety. She's going to have to be supplied security so that she can regulate and be, in, in many ways, the external womb for three to five years post-birth, which is what our neurobiology is requesting. And in order to do that, she needs to be safe neurobiologically or, or, you know, from that central nervous system safe. So in order for this mindful brain to have evolved, these are the conditions that they evolved in because they don't work when any of the other conditions aren't happening. So if a mother is stressed, she won't be able to use these brain structures. They just don't work when we're in a traumatic response and she won't be able to be present to be able to be constantly regulating her offspring. If there isn't enough food, if there isn't enough safe shelter, if there isn't enough clothing, if there isn't enough support, if if she can't 
sleep when she needs to sleep, if she can't tend to that baby when she needs to take care of the baby, that baby can be born with brain damage. Like the brain structures are actually affected by maternal stress. And we've known this since the 60s. And we we know that male infants are far, far, far more vulnerable to maternal stress and maternal and paternal absence than female infants. Female infants seem to be born with a little extra padding so that they can tolerate the pain of the dysregulation or the pain of traumatic stress or emergency responses. Mm-hmm. You talk about dissociating as a defense reaction to trauma or not having your needs met. A creature, when faced with threat, the body is going to do an instant assessment of resources and proximity of threat. But for us as humans, we also have proximity of safety. So if we're out gathering and scavenging and we hear something, the body's going to probably move into an active state of frozenness where the eyesight's change, hearing changes, there's a tonicity to the muscles ready to move into action, but not moving into action yet. So if that predator starts to come close, then the body might move into a a run response or a flee response. But for us, it tends to flee towards safety rather than away from the danger more. And in that case, different brain structures stop working. Other brain structures become hyper aware, like you can sort of maybe hear, see things differently, or you get tunnel vision, or that central nervous system is going to be sending go, 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 go signals. There's also the panic response. Panic attacks are when the body wants to reach out for the nearest human being. They're scared. The body is terrified of something. It's a clinging response. It's a needing response. Those are the active defenses. And if the active defenses don't work, they get shut down by the inactive defenses. And the inactive defenses is all of the tonic immobilities and the submissions. Everything, instead of being in that hard freeze where everything is tight, everything is, is soft and not engaged. We will get lost in our thinking at these times, or we can go into complete submission where we're just gone and following. The weird thing about humans is that we are the only species that can override these defenses and still act like we're normal. It's very strange, but it also goes ties back into attachment. It ties back into that for us as a species, attachment even is higher of a life-saving tactic than the life-saving tactics that the whole the rest of the animal kingdom has. Why would you give us the ability to override these cascade defenses? So a lot of people can act like they're normal and still be in at a cascade defense. They can be dissociating, they can be in a flea response, they can be in a fight response and still somewhat stay in a relationship or act like they're normal or go about their day. And that's the going about the day, the acting normal, the overriding it is attachment. We will do anything to stay socially connected, even if we're not internally socially connected. And that really has to do with how attachment is our biggest defense mechanism, not detachment, not singularity, not individuality, not anything that has to do with being by ourselves. I remember one time I was taking my master's and I was having a 
rather frenetic moment. And I went through the DSM-4 at the time, and they all fit into one of the cascade defenses very nicely. So most of what we're doing is we get into these defenses and we don't know how to turn it off. And most of the time it's because we've been in these defenses since we were children. We have to be in a misogynistic patriarchal world. We are all, all traumatized a little or a lot. I want to dig into it, but I wanted to first get a little bit of a, a better understanding of what happens to us when we are dissociated. What is happening? Depending on when a human being is dissociating. So if a human being is dissociating from very early in childhood, there's going to be this neuroelectrical, neurochemical data receiving shutdown. But we're also drowning in a natural opioid and, and some cannabinoids. Cannabinoids tend to go with the active defenses and opioids tend to go with the inactive defenses. So the body under the skin is being washed in heroin and pot. So it gets released through the gut. It gets released through the bloodstream. It also gets released via the bone marrow. So it's in the saline solution. It's in the stomach and it's in the bloodstream. Everything is washed with this anesthetic to not feel. The insula, when we dissociate, really doesn't work properly. So the insula is sort of like a, a train station. All the information, all the data coming from the body, how I feel, what I sense is going through the insula and the insula then sends it up to the front brain and says, here, what do you make of that? And the front brain goes, oh, that's this, that, and this. And then it's supposed to go back down into the body to regulate that information. I'm cold, I'm hot, I'm sad, I'm lonely, I'm bored, I'm needing to go for a walk or whatever that is. Children dissociate completely because their front brains really aren't designed to make meaning out of anything. And really that meaning making is something that takes decades to grow, to be able to really put the right words and the right meaning in the right context to our inner sensations and our inner affect. But when we dissociate, the thalamus also starts to work. The thalamus is sort of designed to put everything together. But when we dissociate, the thalamus separates things so that feeling and thought get separated or sense perception and intuition get separated. So when we're kids, the information that ends up becoming who we think we are, it's all scattered. And so, especially with like dissociative identity disorder, what you end up getting is a human being who has multiple senses of self that are really activated through different cascade defenses. So you'll have a part that, that is really attached to the flea defense or up to the fawn defense or a part that's really attached to the rage or the angry defense because the thalamus is designed to keep things separate, because the amount of pain that we experience as children when we are neglected and abused is truly unfathomable. We don't have vernacular for this. It is not in the zeitgeist of how painful it is to be neglected as children and how even quadruply painful it is to be harmed, tortured as children. And in order for us to heal that, that central nervous system has to be regulated. And in order for that to be regulated, it needs to be soothed. It needs to be given context. It needs to be given the proper meaning. And when we dissociate, we don't really even know it's there. 
so dissociation can be just not feeling feelings, or it can go all the way to feeling stoned a lot of the day, feeling like you don't belong in this world, feeling like that the world is strange or that you're a strange, that you don't recognize yourself in the mirror. Sometimes you can have missing moments, missing days, missing weeks sometimes. It really is like a ghost or a shell of a person that is designed to keep the most important data of your life away from your knowing. And that most important data is that you were hurt or are in need. Yeah, you write in your paper, you say the dissociated terror is pain with no context, no meaning, and no language, and essentially becomes invisible. It's something that is and something that isn't at the same time. The body knows, but the mind does not. Yeah. A lot of people are running around like that without even realizing they're running around with that. And like I find it interesting, the field of dissociation, we do have etiology. There's biomarkers. You can take tests. It's a mental illness that has tests, but nobody's testing it. Nobody's looking at it. The powers that be really fight what dissociation is hard. And dissociation has had to prove itself, unlike other mental illnesses have had to prove themselves. And I do believe that's because dissociation really is about child abuse. It's really about human-to-human harm. It's basically what happens when we're not cared for and how we survive after not having our needs met. I wanted to get into the sort of meat of your thinking about misogyny and patriarchy. So you say Homo sapiens did not is not designed for the hatred of their mother, mothering in all acts of human maternal and paternal care. Can you elaborate on that? So if we go back to what we were talking about a few minutes ago about what it takes to have an empathetic mother. The homo sapien mother, the need for her to be able to do her neurobiological job, so to speak, like every other mammal in the animal kingdom, there's an evolutionary set template. And our set template is to be with our mums for a long, 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 long time after birth When we're inside that womb, regulation is instant. Human beings need that instant regulation for years and years and years and years after birth. If that doesn't happen, the central nervous system starts to experience the distress of detachment. It starts to experience that kind of pain. In order for that pain to go away, you have to move through the process of dissociation to association. So when, when you have this pain and you have all of these structures that are designed to ignore it, and in a misogynistic patriarchal world, everything that is, is set up in our system is designed to ignore this kind of pain. The mind, when you dissociate, especially over a long period of time, is not only neurobiologically pulling away from what happened, you're also being raised and socialized to pull away from what happened. Because when you're in that kind of pain and people cannot see it, or people are not seeing it, or people refuse to see it, they're going to be using language and context and meaning that is dismissive of your internal experience. That this is your fault, that you're doing this, that this is love, that this is all of these other things, that this isn't happening, stop crying or I'll give you something to cry about. All the language that we use, even the timeouts and the ignorings, are all designed to foster the dissociation of this central nervous system experience. 
once a body dissociates, in order for it to associate, it has to become aware of that feeling. And it's really counterintuitive neurobiologically to both be in an emergent state where your central nervous system is activated and the it's like a live wire where the neurochemistry and neuroelectricity, the brain structures are, are being in, instructed to ignore or dissociate this pain in order to turn on the brain structures that are designed to regulate and see the electrified central nervous system, to feel that electrified nervous system. You have to have so much awareness that's actually stronger than the dissociative response. So it's sort of really super weirdly counterintuitive to heal these wounds because everything inside of you is telling you to not see it, not feel it, not experience it. But in order to heal it, you have to see it, you have to feel it, you have to experience it. And for us as a species in a misogynistic patriarchal world, everything is designed to not see it, not hear it, or to use it in order to not see it, not hear it. Like people who are psychopathic, psychopathic adjacent, they harm others in order to not feel this internal pain. Thank goodness most people aren't like this. But the ones that are have really, really wreaked habit because we're not supposed to be like this. We're supposed to be regulated. It's a law of biomechanics. It's a law of, of evolutionary neurobiology that that central nervous system is driven to be regulated. So in this misogynistic patriarchal world that we live in, Every time that human body is trying to heal this electrified central nervous system to put the right words, to put the right context, to communicate, I'm in pain, it gets met with, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to see it. Let's give it drugs. Let's call it something else. Let's bypass it spiritually. Let's bypass it cognitively. Let's bypass it through all sorts of things that we do. Everything encourages us to ignore this pain that we are in. And if this was normal, then all of the brain structures that are capable of understanding this stuff never, ever would have evolved. People who are securely attached, they don't get sick. We've known this for decades, decades, decades. People who are securely attached, they don't have the mental health problems. They don't have the alcohol addiction problems. They don't have violence. They don't have criminality. They don't have mental illnesses. You say misogyny is the removal of our personal owner's manual. It is because mothers is that owner's manual. Mothers are really hardwired to know instinctually and intuitively what the infant's central nervous system is needing all the time so that she can feed her baby, keep the baby warm, keep it at the right temperature, keep it at the right affective place of feeling safe and secure, which is really challenging for us as a species, considering we grew up in a world where everything wanted to eat us. How is that possible? But that is what we need, because that's what all of our neurobiology says. You know, somewhere around 10,000 years ago, something happened. It's really quite clear. Something happened about 10,000 years ago that prevented mothers from being able to mother and prevented the community from supporting her the way that they had supported her for 290,000 years. And 
when that happened, most people who are not cared for properly become hyper self-aware. Shame. This is wrong. This is my fault. Most people. But a few become hypo self-aware. They lose that awareness. People who tend to be what I would call psychopathic, psychopathic adjacent, they have no internal awareness. They are in a fight response. Everybody at rest, the central nervous system is going to want to heal. It's going to go, oh my God, we're finally out of that danger. Let's start feeling this stuff. Let's start bringing these feelings up to the surface. Let's see if someone can care for them or let's see if I can care for them. So the minute we're at rest, we're going to start to feel our feelings. We're going to start that sensory motor affective information is always going to come out because it's hardwired to be cared for. And people who are psychopathic, psychopathic adjacent, when they hold still and they start to feel, they have zero tolerance for it. And they tend to harm others. I really want to know what is happening inside of them because I don't think we're asking the right questions about psychopathy at all. There's this very, very ingrained belief system that psychopaths are a natural part of humanity. Like, like a lot of people say, these are the hunters. These are the guys that protected us. No. Have you ever met a psychopath? (laughs) I don't protect anybody. They're cowards, really. And we know that the people who go rushing in to take care of the weak and the vulnerable are people who are chock full of oxytocin that also gets released through the central nervous system, through the gut and through the bone marrow. These are the mothers and fathers that are running in, altruistically taking care of their young. It's not the psychopaths that are protecting. As soon as they feel any type of fear or danger, they run. Oh, well, they did the hunting. No, they didn't. Humans really, we don't think humans really started hunting until about 60,000 years ago. But a psychopath, if they hunt a deer, they're not going to share it with anybody. They're going to harm everybody. So this notion that they made the world the way that the world is, is baloney. It's just, they don't work that way. No, but they may have tried to destroy the world that was. They did, right? That's the misogyny and the patriarchy, because if the thing that will drive a psychopath over the bend is someone who's very empathic, because their body is still a human body. It's still hardwired to be cared for and tended to and helped by other people. So when they're around someone who's empathetic, their dissociative barriers are going to go away. Their emergency responses are going to start to go away and they're going to start to feel things and they can't handle it. So that's when they lash out, most likely. I mean, there are lots of theories as to how patriarchy got started and having to do with warrior cultures that developed that then invaded the matriarchal cultures of Europe. That's a whole other area to talk about. And, you know, some things we can learn and some things are lost to history. And But here we are in the current world where I think it is very easy to acknowledge that we live in a world that hates care and that hates mothers and that hates nurturing and that idolizes non-feeling and that prioritizes thinking over feeling and all of the, you know, sort of patriarchal ideology. There's two things that I'm, two areas. So 
I suspect 10,000 years ago, something happened. There's a new theory coming around that there was like a global environmental event that happened where hunting and gathering was was very difficult. So people started planting their own food. And shortly thereafter, alcohol was invented. I really think alcohol was the biggest catalyst of what produced some of the first infants who were psychopathic or psychopathic natured. So that fetal alcohol syndrome, all of the brain structures that are there to regulate the offspring and for the offspring to eventually learn how to regulate others are intensely impacted by alcohol. They don't work all that well. So if a mother had an infant who had fetal alcohol syndrome and she could not regulate her offspring 10,000 years ago, nobody would have known what to do because even today we don't know what to do. So you have an offspring who is dysregulated and then in order to live in a dysregulated body without any ability to have internal insight, internal empathy, internal compassion, as well as shared external insight, external compassion, external empathy, in order to live in that body, they would hurt people. And there's a physiological, neurobiological, chemical reaction that, you know, like this is something that that we've known for hundreds of years that when you really start going into the people who experience pleasure by harming other people, it's probably because their body is dissociating and upping the dissociation so that they are feeling high and not feeling what they truly feel and not feeling what they truly know. And so like when when you go and ask serial killers how they feel and they're like, that's pleasure. It's not going to be the same pleasure as a regulated human being. It's not like what they are talking about is a totally different animal than what people who have empathy feel. But we who have empathy empathize with that and we assume that what they're talking about is what we talk about. And so we sort of interject or we place in our own empathy, we anthropomorphize in many ways what they're experiencing when what they're experiencing is very singular inside of them where most of us experience humanity in multiple multiple ways and multiple levels so as soon as humans started hurting humans around 10,000 years ago it spread like wildfire because we we have no natural innate ways of healing human to human harm and we have zero defenses to human neglect. We've got natural ways of dealing with being eaten. We have natural ways of dealing with being through fires and all that kind of stuff. But we don't have natural defenses of healing human to human harm, except for other people being with us through that pain, other people holding us, other people regulating us, other people soothing us, other people shushing us, other people tend to to us while we're in these horrific places. This is psychodynamic or psychoanalytic theory has known this for a long, 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 long time. And the most common thing with all therapies, no matter what sort of new fandangled modality that is being presented, the thing that works the most is you have a regulated therapist. When that person is upset, the therapist is staying regulated and co-regulating that person saying, it's going to be okay. This pain is very temporary. It's not going to kill you, even though it feels like you're dying. You're going to be all right. You can work through this. You can work through this. You do know how to heal this stuff. It's just 
patriarchy and misogyny can't look at it because looking at it means they have to feel it. Most normal human beings feel this in a variety of ways all the time. We just get called anxious or depressed or bipolar or schizophrenic or mentally ill. But most of us feel this pain all the time. It's the people who don't feel the pain, the one that we need to focus our attention on. But we don't. And you talk about like how this misogyny patriarchy dynamic complicates your field, which I think is really interesting. It really does, right? So the field of dissociation, it has been viciously attacked so many times. They come after therapists. They come after their license. They come after their livelihood. In the 90s, when we, the field of dissociation, the 80s and the early 90s was like a a heyday. There was so much energy and so much enthusiasm. And we were doing research like never before. We were starting to go, hey, I see this. You see this. I see this. And it was thriving. And then laws started to change and people started to hold psychopaths and psychopathic adjacent people accountable. And they came back, viciously they came back and put out this narrative of false memory syndrome. They started suing therapists and the field of dissociation itself almost died. But those that hung on started to use the scientific method, right? We started going, okay, you're saying that you think this is schizophrenia. So let's study what is the similarities and what are the differences? of schizophrenia, it turns out that most of the, they're called the Schneiderian first rank symptoms. These are the main symptoms of schizophrenia are actually trauma symptoms, not schizophrenic symptoms. Then we started looking at what was the difference? Like, is this actually something that is a fantasy model? Is this a social contagion? And it turns out, no, people who are truly DID and we can test it because our tests had to be very, 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 very good tests. They had to have a lot of scientific reliability, a lot of scientific validity. We had to make sure that what we were measuring is what we were actually measuring. So we can do a blood draw and you can actually do an fMRI because we do have biomarkers. So when you do these tests and people who legitimately have DID, we've tested it through doing uh, fMRI studies. There was a, uh, a woman named Simone Rendiers who her test, she took a group of people who were normal, the control group, then she took actors and encouraged them to behave like people with dissociative identity disorder. And then she had a group of people with DID and she did a whole bunch of studies on them, tests, and the people with DID could not be duplicated. How their responses were through the fMRI, how the responses were through neurochemistry could not be duplicated and replicated. But this study has been duplicated and replicated by like three other labs. Very rarely when you're studying humans, does human behavior get duplicated and replicated? I think people are pretty familiar with the Stanford experiment. They did an experiment where they took a group of students to be the jailers and a group of students to be the prisoners. The main grad student that was involved in that, the, the meanest guy as the prisoner, he was encouraged to be that mean. The professor told him, be as mean as you can. That study has never been duplicated and replicated. When they actually do it scientifically and they they do the controls and all that kind of stuff, they tried doing it again in the 2000s. And it turns out that like by the end of the week, everybody's having sandwiches together and getting along. They actually turned tried to turn it into a TV series and it became too boring. 
So studying human behavior is really hard because very few things are duplicated and replicated. But the field of dissociation and the studies that we have have been duplicated and replicated. And they've also been found in other areas. The area of attachment, the researchers don't talk to each other all that much, but they found the same thing. And then the polyvagal theory has found the same thing. So when you start to have three different independent areas of academic study that are all finding the same thing, it's there. And it's more there than anything else. And it's not acknowledged. It's dismissed. It's harmed. In many, many ways, people with DID are the most abused people on this planet. And they are so hurt whenever they go and seek for help. And that's only, you're only talking about the people who have been most seriously harmed. I feel like, you know, most of the population is walking around with... I don't want to trivialize it, but dissociated. I would really think, like, if I somehow had a billion dollars and could do a thorough enough study, I bet you we would find that 98, 99% of the population is dissociating a lot. So if you were to be able to direct your field of study of dissociation and human-to-human harm, what would you, ideally, to, like, really move the needle, what would you? I'd like to see studies with psychopathy and dissociation. I'm very interested in what's happening inside of their bodies and inside their neurochemistry when it comes to what happens when they think about hurting other people. I think there's a whole bunch of information we can learn about how they get through their day. There's a lot of really brilliant people who behaviorally know what they do. They hurt people and they go about their day planning and thinking about hurting people the really, really, really bad ones. I'd like to see that. I would like to give evidence of what happens when you actually care for people. I would like a care center. I'd like to show what happens when you provide that mindful, maternal, regulated care for people. What happens three months into it, four months into it, when those people are there 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We could then start to figure out who is capable of healing and who's not. And the ones that aren't capable of healing, because I do think that there is a small percentage of humans who are incapable of healing. I think a lot of the psychopathic adjacent people are actually capable of healing, but the true psychopaths are not capable of healing. But we could very easily start to run tests for that, like really figuring out, okay, this is the physiology of someone who's truly psychopathic. This is the neurochemistry of what's going on. And all of these tools are there, but we're not looking. The experiments they do to study depression in in animals, and then they extrapolate that information. So what they do is they take mice and they put mice into a cylinder full of water. And when that mouse stops fighting, they take it out and give it antidepressants. And if they put it back in the water and it moves, then they think that that antidepressant is what worked. I'm like, "Mm, that's not depression. That's a cascade defense. Another experiment that I read about was they put these mice into tubes and they trap them there for an hour a day. And the mice start to die around day 18. I'm like, that's not depression. That's not sad. It is kind of helpless, hopeless, but helpless, hopeless is a cascade defense. It's what the mind is going to start to do when the body is helpless and hopeless. If you are trapped in a feeling that is the feeling of, you know, every cascade defense is about death or dying. The fundamental neurochemistry and the fundamental electricity of those states is death 
and dying. If you dissociate, your body thinks the next thing that's going to happen is death. Interesting. You said human beings can have the same response. I'm paraphrasing now, but have the same response to a threat of death or harm or the perception of a threat of death or harm. Yes. And that's what makes us unique as a species. So if our bodies perceive, if it moves into a cascade defense, even if we're sitting in a house, the body is in a state of death or dying. And the mind is trying to figure this out. And the mind is going to be regurgitating what it was told, but it's also going to try and figure this out. It's going to start to think and overthink. We're going to start to feel uncomfortable. There's going to be all these signals that something needs to happen. Either we need to hide or we need to move or we need to hold or we need to block or we need to soothe and cuddle. And most people, especially if they were neglected in the first three years of life, the soothing and the cuddling doesn't even enter their consciousness. So they don't know how to self-soothe. And that is part of the misogyny and patriarchy and how we've normalized human traumatic responses. So we think that like all of this behavior is normal. It is normal in a traumatized world, but it's not normal for our species. Right. And I'm just thinking exactly how abnormal this is. Here we are sitting in front of our TVs or screen or social media, absorbing what's happening in Israel and Gaza in Ukraine, other wars around the world. And we have a daily diet of trauma, of horrific things happening to our fellow human beings elsewhere. Because that's nothing new. Absolutely. But what is that doing to us? It's doing the same old, same old. But I do think we have enough. You know, as awful as social media is, there is a part of it that's brought in connection. Like, how did I meet you? Sure. Right? So there's also this other stories. There's like TikTok and feminist TikTok is a fascinating place to hang out. I love it. It's my new favorite thing. There are women talking about their experiences unlike any other time in history. If you told my Betty Friedan reading self at 22 that in 30 years there's going to be a woman who is the most powerful person on earth, who can change social culture like that, and that she has a feminist outlook on life, I would have went, that'd be wonderful, but it's not going to happen. It's happening. Taylor Swift is one of the most influential people on the planet, and she's a feminist. If you would have told me things like Barbie, the Barbie movie that came out, that the Barbie movie made more money than the violent mind of Martin Scorsese or the violent, like, like to me myself, I can't even really watch TV anymore. I can't really watch movies anymore because it's just like all of the romantic comedies are basically a coercive controlling relationship with a lovely happy ending. And I'm like, that doesn't happen. So true. So extremely true. I have the same reaction. And I'm just, I'm really tired of, of these movies that are just the same story of a psychopathic's version of life of let's just go and kill people and it doesn't really bother anybody. Let's go beat people up. It doesn't really bother anybody. I can't do it anymore. Abigail Disney, uh, she's a Disney heir. She's very outspoken feminist, I would say, said Hollywood, I'm paraphrasing too, but Hollywood owes us all a debt for 
promoting that violence is the solution to every problem. Well, yeah. But if we go back to that original, like, what what is social media? It is brutal. It is rough, but we know about it. And I said this about a year ago. I think we're in the middle of an extinction burst of patriarchy. I think the next five years are going to be pretty rough because it doesn't want to go down and it only goes down by fighting. But I think it's ending. I think that... But I mean, what about these wars? Like, we have been in perpetual war for decades now around the world. And I just feel like every every generation has a war or many wars. And what is it doing to us? It's doing terrible, awful, horrible things to us. Yeah. It's traumatizing the living daylights out of us. But I think we also are, are learning because we have been studying. There's some amazing work going on in Africa right now with child soldiers most child soldiers, if you save them, if you get them into a place of safety, they do not go on to become violent. Hmm. The vast majority of human beings, if they are given safety and security, they will not be violent. So I wouldn't be surprised if countries in the next five, 10 years start popping up things like universal base income, like uh, secure housing. And I think more and more and more and more people are starting to realize how much our children need us and how safe they need to be. The studies are starting to come out that kids that were put in daycares in the 80s and 90s, it did serious damage. So we're starting to really see what we need and what is visible. And I wouldn't be surprised in the next five, 10 years, the visible parts of violence that we see are going to be addressed in a different way. I'm I'm so bizarrely hopeful. It's not as if I have a great life. Like I spend every day, like people don't really understand what I do. When I'm working, and I work usually Tuesday through Friday, and I usually work eight, nine hours a day. And I've done this for my whole adult life. I hear stories of how they were kidnapped as children, how they were brutalized as children, how they were part of sex trafficking rings. Like the stories and the shit that I hear every day. And I'm hopeful. The reason why I'm hopeful is because of the, you know, a lot of people in the field of dissociation, they learned a long time ago that shame sensitive, dissociative aware, trauma informed practices heal. I see time and time and time again, when I first meet people, they are like, they're unable to speak to me. They are so terrified that they claw at their throat. There are no words to describe how scared they are inside to being perfectly fine, happy, content. And that's just something not unusual in my world. I see this happen over and over and over again. I myself have gone through this. I have been, I spent, you know, I'm a woman in this world. I spent most of my life terrified. I have an A score of nine. That's a high, 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 high A score. 10 is like the top. Can you explain A score? It's called the Adverse Childhood Experience Study. And they went to a middle-class suburban American neighborhood and they interviewed like something like 50,000 or 75,000 people. And they asked people, did any of these 10 things happen to you? Was there divorce in your family? Did you feel loved? Were you spanked? Was there alcohol use? This kind of stuff. And they showed that if you have an ACE score of so many, then the chances of having mental illness and physical illness start to increase a whole bunch. And and sort of the top score was 10 out of 10. And I have a 9 out of 10. I have a very high score. 
if you were to just sort of land into my life right now and land into the relationship that I have with my parents and land into the relationship that my parents have with each other, you'd have no idea. We are securely attached now. My children are securely attached. I do not ever feel frightened. And, you know, having an ACE score, my my whole entire central nervous system procedurally learned day in and day out that danger is right there. Mm. You know, I've looked into the eyes of four different homicidal men. I've been on the brink of death and dying from men at least four times in my life. Men known to you? Yep. Yeah. Yep. Boyfriends, ex-husband, mm. childhood coaches. I think it's something that that a lot of us see the black eye, right, where their pupils become hugely dilated. And I think if we studied that and figured out what was going on, the neurochemistry and the neuroelectricity of that, we'd find out an awful lot of stuff of of what they're doing. Which makes me hopeful in turn, the fact that we have what sounds to me like incredible ability to bounce back or resiliency or whatever you want to call it. Care. Care. Safety, security is our baseline. And every upset that we have, that's your body trying to get back to baseline. Every time you feel your pain, that's your body trying to get back to baseline. If you ever ask a question, am I crazy here? If you ever ask a question, what is wrong with me? You have all the ingredients you need to heal. Healing is not that complicated. It is excruciatingly painful and extremely difficult. I think it's the hardest thing humans can do. And this is probably why misogyny and patriarchy has continued because healing this kind of pain is very, very, very hard. It is hard to be present with what happened to you. It is hard to sit with the data that seems so very obvious that you needed care and it wasn't there. The data of having that pain inside and knowing that another human being fostered it or harvested it or created it in order to feast off of it. That's, that's for those of us that aren't cruel or aren't wired that way, that's unfathomable. And in order to sit with that unfathomable knowledge that someone did this to you, that's hard, but not impossible. Yeah, but we're sitting on top of, and I don't, I'm not arguing with you, <laughs> but, but we're, we're sitting on top yes. of m- millennia of this behavior. We are, we are, we are. But you know what, really, if I had my magical powers, if we were to screen and get people who were psychopathic or psychopathic adjacent out of politics, and if we were to start to do universal base income and do universal housing, most of the damage of misogyny and patriarchy, the damage that has been done is going to take some time, but it could be stopped almost immediately. Because infants... Human infants are not born knowing about misogyny and patriarchy. The neurobiology and the neurochemistry of a homo sapien is to be attached. My my dearest friend, she just had her first baby. And I don't hear this peanut cry. Because her mom and dad are there all the time. And this little girl is in a world where all her needs are being met and everybody loves her. Yeah, you you say uh, that a violent world is extraordinarily odd and abhorrent to humans. It is. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> I, I appreciate that phrasing. <laughs> well, it is. It is very odd and it is very abhorrent. And most of us, if we had our home and we had the ability to be in our lives where it was safe and secure, most of us would fall into that. And Rutger Bregman also wrote a book called Utopia for Realists. And he talks about how every time we study universal base income, we've st- we've been studying it for hundreds of years and the results are always the same. When people get universal base income, they don't sit around. They might sit around for a little while because we're all exhausted and totally traumatized and we need a moment to catch our breath. But they start to become productive. They start to go back to school. Alcoholism goes down. Domestic violence goes down. A lot of the social problems that we are paying for disappear. And, you know, my son was saying, like, who's going to pay for it? Because this is sort of the first answer when you talk about universal base income. It is way cheaper to do universal base income than it is to pay for all this other stuff, like by trillions. And every study that's ever been done shows this. And I don't know how it's going to happen, but I think it probably will happen because more and more awareness is happening. More and more people like Katie Porters and these other politicians who are coming in and they're finally putting their foot down. This is the first time in history that this has ever happened. What we've learned since the 60s about humans and human behavior and attachment, like the attachment theory came out in the 60s. Dissociation's a little bit longer. We've known about it for about 130 years, but we know about it. We're talking about this stuff. You go on TikTok and you have all these women who don't have degrees in, in women's studies. They're just talking and going, hey, wait a minute. I, this is your experience. This is my experience. And it's happening really fast. It's happening so very fast that women are all of a sudden saying, no, we're not going to have children in this world. And we're not going to be reproducing. Women are starting to develop like sexual assault centers and domestic violence centers were started by women and they were very different from psychology back in the 70s and they were started in basements and i think there's another expansion of this where we're women are starting to move into homes together and co-raise their children mommyuns yes right where they are finding it just much easier for a bunch of mothers and their kids to be taking care of each other in these homes. And this is becoming kind of normal. And all of the studies that are like men are so lonely and, you know, women aren't getting married. That's what's happening. Women are like, yeah, no, we have these pairing profound friendships that are sustaining us. That women are learning how to figure out that being alone is not the threat that it used to be. Yeah. And that getting the man is not the prize. Right. Decentering men. We are. We're definitely decentering angry men. And the more that we center our infants or those who are having infants. So if we don't want to have children, wonderful. I think it's great. I think it's very, because not everybody's designed to have children. But if we tend to those who are. And we give them resources so that they can take care of the next generation. Because that's our normal baseline, it's going to happen quickly. Looking forward to it. <laughs> can you imagine what's going to happen 30 years from now that we can't even imagine? Your your positivism is uh, infectious. I'm filled with hope. <laughs> I, you know what? I'm filled with hope too. I, I really do believe with every cell of me that understanding mindfulness the way that I do and understanding dissociation the way that I do and, and working with the population and how often I see people not only heal from this stuff, but thrive. 
because I have learned how to be their co-regulator in these terrible times. And I'm not the only one who does this kind of work. There's lots of us that do this kind of work. You see it happen. You see people become alive. You see people thrive. You know, my first training was how to be a psychic. I went to go for years on learning how to be a psychic, but basically it taught me how to meditate and it taught me how to listen to my intuition. And then I went back and figured out the science of all of this. What is actually happening? And there's science to explain all of this. And it's right there, right in front of us. If you think about it, like our ability to feel what other people feel, like that's a superpower like no other. If you sit and contemplate that, even for five minutes, that's what makes us a special, unique species. And it's not spiritual. It's not a cognitive override. It's actually physiology. It's neurobiology that we are hardwired to protect others and to be protected by others. We all just really want to be seen and heard and felt and to have that inner intimate side of us loved and cared for. And that is not dead. And patriarchy has been trying to kill that shit for 10,000 years. And it's not dead. It's growing. And it's growing. And we now have science. And we are actually starting to hold these people accountable. That we are actually starting to know these things. That we are talking about this stuff. I think the powers that be, the ones that really hold that patriarchy, the the large billionaires and capitalists, something's going to happen. It's going to break. Because we're not we're already not tolerating it. It's very violent right now because they are being held accountable. And a, a psychopath's reaction to being held accountable is what? Having to stop and pause and look inside. All that pain, all that suffering, and they've got nothing to buffer it. So being held accountable is really hard for them. Actually, it's impossible for them. And we're starting to hold them accountable and they're exploding. Their heads are popping off for God's sakes. Or they're putting that head in the sand. <laughs> or that explosion is is being taken out with other people. But yeah. it is, it is yeah. ending. I hope you're right. Okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Thank you I so very you much. For, okay. Wonderful to see you again. Thank you for listening to Subject to Power. You can find the show online at subjecttopower.com or subscribe to the show wherever you find your podcasts. I'd love to know your thoughts on these conversations, so please drop a note on the website or find us on social media. The best way to support the show is to rate and review Subject to Power on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other listeners find us. Subject to Power is written, hosted, and produced by me, El Kamihira. Audio engineering is done by Jason Sheasley at Abridged Audio. Cover art by B. Johnson. And music by Beware of Darkness. <laughs>